What's your favorite story about somebody who had a humble beginning and then made it big? I mean, everybody's kind of got a favorite one of those. I think that they kind of cherish. One of my favorite is about a fellow who was born in 1931 in a little two-room, unpainted house in Spavanaugh, Oklahoma. Now, he lived in a house that small because his dad worked in the mines, and that's all his dad could afford. Later, they moved to a place called Whitebird, Oklahoma, big metropolis, where the family of seven all lived in a two-bedroom house. They had no indoor plumbing, had no heat, no air conditioning, didn't even have a kitchen. They cooked their food on an old wood stove, which is the same stove they heated their bath water on. This is how this young man grew up. His dad had always dreamed of playing Major League Baseball but had been too poor and had never gotten the chance. And when he had a little boy in 1931, he decided to dedicate himself to seeing that his boy got the chance that he never got. No matter how tired he was when he got home from the mines, this dad would go out, he'd play ball with the boy. They played in old open fields. They played in barns if it was raining. They played in abandoned mine shafts. They played everywhere. One time when the boy broke his ankle and he got infected so badly that the doctors were talking about amputating it, this dad put his son in the car, drove him 175 miles to Oklahoma City to the Crippled Children's Center, and there had him treated with the new wonder drug called penicillin. And the infection cleared up. They were able to save the leg. His dad slept in the car while his little boy was in the hospital because he didn't have any money for a hotel room. And the reason they had to drive 175 miles to Oklahoma City was because they couldn't afford to put him in the hospital in town. They were broke. Now, I don't suppose there was ever a more rags-to-riches story than the story of this fellow who went on to become one of the greatest Major League Baseball players of all time, really an American legend. Does anybody know who he is? Who is he? Mickey Mantle's his name. That's right. Some of you must be from Spavanaugh, Oklahoma. Hometown boy made good. But anyway, Mickey Mantle was his name. I think everybody, if I said that name, knows exactly who I'm talking about. This is how the young man began. And maybe you've got one of these stories that you kind of cherish about humble beginnings going on to big things. But this is really what Jesus wants to talk to us about this morning. He wants to talk to us about uh, humble beginnings bringing a big result, but not a big baseball result, a big spiritual result. Let's look at it together right here in Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Now, if you ask the average Jewish person in Jesus' day that question, they would have had an answer. They would have said, well, the kingdom of God is all about the Messiah coming in great glory and in great splendor and running the Romans out and taking over the world and setting up a majestic kingdom. And they had good reason for looking at it that way. I mean, in the Old Testament, there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about this kind of glorious consummation of the kingdom of the Messiah. The problem is that they failed to read the Old Testament carefully enough to see that there were two comings of the Messiah, not just one. A first coming where he would come in humility to pay for the sins of the world on the cross, and a second coming where he would come in the kind of glory and majesty that they were thinking about to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Now, in between so far, there's been, what, 1,900 years or so? And who knows how many more there may be, 
But the point is that Jesus' first coming was not going to meet the expectations most Jewish people had for this glorious kingdom. As a matter of fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, went back to heaven, all he left behind was not some great kingdom of God. He left behind a little tiny band of followers and he told them, now you go out and assault the whole world for me. That's what he left behind. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I was part of that little band of disciples, I think I would have felt outmatched, huh? I mean, what have I got? I've got no political power. I've got no money. I've got no army. I've got no nothing. And it's me against the world? Come on now. It's in response to that kind of thinking, which the disciples had, that Jesus tells these two parables. Two parables that are all about reassuring them and inspiring them by telling them, hey, fellas, the impact of Christianity is going to be enormous. Don't worry about how we start. Just get out there and do what I told you to do. Now look at these parables. The first one is verse 19. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air even came and perched in its branches. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now let's do a little botany here, okay? The mustard plant, if you want to know, it's Sinopis nigra is the Latin name. The mustard plant was a very common plant in the ancient Near East. Everybody had one in their garden, and they grew from little itsy-bitsy little seeds. I mean, the seeds are so tiny, they look like a little tiny speck of pepper on your finger. That's all they are. And yet you plant that tree, Jesus said, and that thing grows, that seed, and that thing grows into an enormous tree. Seven to 15 feet, most of them grow. As a matter of fact, a fellow named William Thompson who wrote a book called The Land in the Book because of his explorations of Palestine in the late 1800s said that he saw some of these mustard trees back then that had grown to 12 to 15 feet and people on horses rode under their branches. That's a pretty big tree. And it came from that little itsy-bitsy, teensy-weensy little seed that Jesus said you put in the ground and it gets so big, birds come and build their nests in this tree. Now what's the point? What's the point of the parable? Well, this parable is focusing on the outward success of Christianity. What Jesus is saying is even though Christianity may start very tiny and small like a little mustard seed, it's going to get enormous. Now, did Christianity start really small like a mustard seed? Sure it did. Sure it did. A baby born in a dirty old barn in an obscure part of the Roman Empire nobody ever heard of. He never left Palestine. He only had a public ministry for three years. He made a few converts among the poor and the uneducated and the illiterate, and then he died on a shameful cross, leaving behind a motley crew of followers, all of whom added together wouldn't total a mustard seed. Did Christianity start like that? Yes, it did. But how has Christianity ended up? Has it grown like a mustard tree in the parable? Of course it has. The seed planted in Palestine by a carpenter and a few fishermen has become a tree that today reaches almost every corner of the globe. Do you know that almost one out of every three people in the world say that Christianity is their religion? Now, that may not mean that they're all born again and they all have a personal relationship with Christ like we think of, but one out of every three people in the world says Christianity is the religion that I choose. In China alone, there's between 25 and 50 million Christians and over 500,000 
house churches. And I don't have the time to talk to you about the phenomenal growth of Christianity in Korea, in Indonesia, in Africa. All of the Western world today is what it is because of the growth and the proliferation of Christianity. Friends, it's not even done yet. There's more growth to come. The tree isn't finished growing because when Jesus Christ comes back, whenever that's going to be, at his second appearance, he's going to end up setting the kingdom of God up and it's going to take over the whole earth. So did it start like a mustard seed? Yes. Has it grown like a huge tree? Uh-huh. Second parable. And again, Jesus said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman takes and shoves into a big old loaf of flour until the whole dough, all of that dough has been worked through. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like yeast that a woman puts in a loaf of dough, and for that matter, a man. Thank you very much. Now, you know, a couple of years ago for Christmas, we got a bread maker, and I love my bread maker. I love eating what comes out of my bread maker. And you know what? I'm 45 now, and I'd never seen bread made until we got this bread maker. Can you believe that? You say, well, didn't your mother make homemade bread or homemade muffins or homemade rolls or homemade something? I mean, you had to see something made. Folks, not my mother. Mm -mm. You know, on Saturday Night Live, Coffee Talk with Linda Richmond, I'm getting verklempt. That's my mother, folks. You know Whoopi Goldberg's recipe for chicken soup? And step one, send the butler to the store for chicken. That's my mother. My mother didn't do windows. She didn't cook. She didn't clean house. She didn't wash dishes. She didn't make bread. She played lots of mahjong and canasta, thank you. I mean, we're talking real Jewish American princess here that I had. That's the way it was in my house. I never saw bread made. Are you kidding? Bread came from the store. Nobody made bread. Well, the first time I ever saw it made, I was 40-some years old. And you know what was amazing to me is the incredible potency of yeast. I mean, you take this huge old lump of dough and put this little tiny bit of yeast in and whoom, thing goes off like an atom bomb inside this little loaf of bread and just works through the whole thing. I mean, I wanted to put a whole bunch of yeast in. And Brenda kept saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Put the whole packet in. No, no, no. She said, don't do that. You'll be sorry. Because I thought, how can that little tiny bit handle a big piece of loaf like this? But it does. What does Jesus say? The kingdom of God is like what? Yeast, right? Stick it inside a big old lump of dough and it might disappear for a while and you may not see it for a while, but it's not gone. Oh no, it's not gone. Because all of a sudden, that dough starts bubbling and boiling and moving and jumping and rising and going. And from the inside out, that dough completely changes because of the effect of that yeast. Now, what's this parable talking about? It's not talking about the outward growth of Christianity. The first one did that. This one is talking about the power of the gospel to change things from the inside. You understand? The mustard seed grew into a big tree. Okay, Christianity's going to get big. But the yeast went on the inside of the dough and changed that dough from the inside out. And this is talking about the fact that just like that yeast permeated and changed every molecule of that dough, so the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you thrust it into a society, when you thrust it into a culture, when you thrust it into a person's life, goes to work on the inside and leaves no part of that society, no part of that culture, no part of that life untouched. It Christianizes everything it touches. 
leaving a culture, a society, or a person's life radically different than it found it. And once again, has history proven Jesus Christ to be right in what he said about the gospel? Yes, it has. Christianity started as a tiny little piece of leaven in Jerusalem, a little piece of yeast, and it leavened Jerusalem, and then it leavened Palestine, and then it leavened the Roman Empire, and then it leavened the emperor himself, so that in 312, Constantine embraced Christianity and made it the religion of the empire. It leavened Europe, it leavened North America. Now it's out leavening China and Africa and Indonesia and everywhere it goes. Friends, so much of our art, our music, our law, our education, our government has all been leavened by the yeast of Christianity. Our concern for the suffering and the poor, our desire to protect the rights of the oppressed. I'm always amused when we go overseas and we tell countries that they need better human rights records. What we don't understand is countries where the gospel has never been, they don't care about human rights. Don't we understand that? They don't care about human rights. They humor us because they want our money. They don't care about human rights. Why do we? Because Christianity has leavened this country and leavened our value system. That's why. Our concepts of morality and ethics and decency, our respect for authority, the value of working hard and being industrious in everything we do, every attitude of benevolence and kindness and compassion, our respect for the sanctity of life, these are all leavening effects of the message of Christianity on a society and a culture. And if you don't believe me, you just go look at those cultures that have been untouched by the yeast of Christianity and you see if they have any of those values. They won't. You know, my boys, I don't know about how your children are, and if you've got children, or maybe you're this way if you don't, but my children want to walk out into any performance situation and be the very best the first time they walk out there. They want to walk on the ball field and hit four home runs first time they ever played baseball in their life. They want to walk on a basketball court and score 85 points the first time they ever play basketball. They want to go play piano and sit down for their first recital and play like Van Cliburn. You know what I'm trying to say? And I keep telling them, fellas, it doesn't matter how you start. Don't worry if you don't start big. What matters is how you what? Finish. Uh Uh-huh. Doesn't matter how you start. What matters is how you finish. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples, guys, don't worry about how you start. Does it worry us if we're starting small like a little mustard seed? So what? Don't worry about it. What matters is how we're going to finish. And we're going to finish, Jesus said, by seeing Christianity's influence spread like a big old mustard tree all over the world. So what if we start kind of imperceptibly like yeast that's hidden inside a dough? Don't worry about how we start. What you need to know is the way we're going to end is that we're going to see Christianity penetrate and change the values of every place in the world that it goes. Now stop worrying about how we start and just get out there and share the gospel and I'll do the rest. That's what this is all about. Now that's the end of our parables, but of course it leaves us with the really important question, doesn't it? And you know what that is. What is it? So what? Yeah. I mean, Lon, great history lesson. Love it. Glad to know Constantine became a Christian 312. Going to write that down when I get home. Really appreciate you telling me that. So what? What difference does this make? Well, I think it makes a big difference because as I look at these parables, I don't see them just as a prediction, but as a promise. You understand what I'm saying? I want you to say that with me. These parables are not just a prediction. They're a 
You say, Lon, what are you talking about? What I'm saying here is I believe that God's just not talking here about predicting the future of Christianity, but he's talking about giving us a promise about the power, the transforming power that the message of Jesus Christ will have in people's lives, just like yeast, if we'll stick it in, this is what it'll do. It's a promise. You know, did you read about in the paper the bill that was introduced in the D.C. Council the other day to allow prayer in this public schools again? Did y'all read about that? You know, the ACLU is all up in arms about it. The Americans United for Separation of Church and State said it'll sue the District of Columbia if the bill passes, and yet it looks like the bill has a pretty good chance of passing. Do you know who the sponsor of that bill was? Who was it? Marion Barry. Marion Barry. You mean that dope-smoking, cocaine-snorting, womanizing, arrogant, life-out-of-control ex-jailbird? That's him, Marion Barry. He sponsored a prayer in the public school bill? Yes, he did. You say, I don't know, Lon, that's a does-not-compute as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. When they asked him about why he was doing this and whether he really thought that violence and drugs and the other problems being faced by the public schools in Washington, D.C., whether he really thought this Christianity and prayer thing could really help or was he just doing it for political reasons, did he really think it could help? Here's what Marion Barry said, and I quote, ready? I am an example of how it works, end of quote. I am an example of how it works. That's what Marion Barry said. Now look, I don't know Marion Barry personally, and I cannot verify for you whether or not he has a real and genuine personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but he says he does. He says he does. And look, as an outsider, I'll tell you, it sure looks like he's living a different lifestyle than he lived a few years ago. And Marion Barry said, you look at me, I had a life that was completely out of control. And when I was at my absolute worst, somebody came along and took some of that yeast and whoosh, stuck it into my life. And that yeast went off and boiled and seethed and bubbled inside of me. And look at me, I'm a different person today. I am an example of how it works. That's what he said. Somebody took that yeast and whoop, stuck it into Chuck Colson's life too, didn't they? Did it go off? Like a bomb, buddy. And what we have today in Chuck Colson is not the same man we had in the Nixon White House, was it? No. And somebody took that yeast and stuck it into Dave Dravecki's life. And somebody took that yeast and stuck it into James Dobson's life one day. And somebody took that yeast and stuck it into Lee Atwater's life. And they stuck it into an older man that you may not know since he's been dead for hundreds of years. But his name was John Newton, a slave trader. Somebody took the word of God and stuck it into his life. And he became a pastor and a songwriter and wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but somebody stuck yeast in me and look at me now. Not quite, but that, I don't think it rhymes, but it's close. That's the point. And somebody took the yeast of the word of God and stuck it into Lon Solomon's life. And I'll tell you, brethren, it leavened my brains out. I got news for you. And if you're here and you're a Christian today and you know Jesus Christ, somebody came along and took the word of God like yeast and shoved it into your life. Maybe it was your mother or your father or a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife or a friend at work or a Sunday school teacher. I don't know who it was, but somebody took it and shoved it into your life. And it maybe you didn't see it for a while. Maybe you didn't hear from it for a while, but sooner or later that stuff started going And that's why you're sitting here this morning saying Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior 
Somebody put some yeast in your life. Now, Lon, are you saying that everybody we share the gospel with is going to give their life to Christ? Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I can't make you that promise because the Bible doesn't. But I will say this. You put the yeast into people's lives and God will make sure it goes off. They're going to have to fight to say no. They may say no, but they're going to have to fight to do it because the yeast works. The yeast will do its job. And you know our enemy Satan knows that he can't stop the power of the yeast. It can't be done. He can't turn off the power of the word of God. He can't turn off the power of the gospel of Christ in people's lives. So he goes to the next tactic. And the next tactic is to stop us as Christians from ever putting the yeast into people. That's the only tactic he can use. And he comes up with everything he can think of, every trick in the book to concentrate his efforts on you and me as Christians to discourage us from injecting the yeast of the gospel message into people's lives. He talks to us about peer pressure. He makes us feel the fear of reprisal. He makes us worried about our reputation. He makes us worry about failing. He makes us very sensitive to the idea of looking unsophisticated and looking uncool. Or one of his favorite tactics is to try to convince us that the gospel's not going to work anyway. Do you know a fellow in that same article I was reading about Marion Barry, a fellow named James Kahn from the spokesperson for Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. They ought to get an acronym for that. That's a mess to say. But anyway, here's what he said. Quote, he said, school prayer and religion are not the answer to social problems. End of quote. They're not the answer to social problems. Well, Mr. Kahn, would you tell me what is? Money isn't. Welfare isn't. Government isn't. Work isn't, programs aren't, what is? If you got all the answers, pal, and you know religion and prayer is not the answer, then you tell me why America and schools everywhere around America, since we take prayer out, are such a mess. Look, when I went to school, the biggest thing we worried about was chewing bubble gum and smoking in the restroom. That was only 30 years ago when I was in high school. Today, you worry about getting shot in the public schools of America. I mean, maybe I'm stupid, but I think when they took God and prayer out of the public schools, the public schools didn't go up. I think they went down. And this is the way Satan works on us. He says to us, hey, look, nobody's interested in what Christianity has to say. Nobody wants to know about that. I mean, what is a bunch of Bible quotes and a bunch of Bible verses going to do anyway to handle the social problems of your life and the social problems of America? Don't give them a Bible verse. Don't give them a Bible quote. They won't do any good. Is that true? Is that true? Well, now listen, think about what a Bible quote and a few Bible verses did for you. What did they do for you, huh? Didn't they lead you to Jesus Christ? Didn't they end up with you getting your sins forgiven? Didn't they bring you eternal life? Didn't they revolutionize the way you're living here on earth? Didn't they free you from the grip of sin in your life? Didn't they bring real meaning and purpose to your life? Didn't they restore hope and give you a reason to go on and a purpose for living? That's what a few Bible verses and Bible quotes did in your life. And if it did it in your life, why should we think it won't do it in somebody else's life? Don't listen to those lies out there. I'm telling you, friends, we need to believe what Jesus tells us, that the gospel is like leaven. You stick it in some dough and it's going to go off. Jesus said, Isaiah 55, my word will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active and more powerful than any two-edged sword. It penetrates and judges the very thoughts and intents of people's hearts. Nothing is hidden from its sight. God says, you put the word of God in somebody's life and it'll slice them open and fillet them like a fish. 
it'll go right down to the deepest part of their being and it'll lay them wide open. Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings people to salvation. Now, my question is whether you and I really believe that. Whether we really believe it. Say, Lon, well, of course we do. It's in the Bible. No, no, no. I didn't ask you if it's in the Bible. I know it's in the Bible. I ask you whether you really believe it. Whether you really believe it. See, I don't think most Christians really do. Because if we really believed it, we wouldn't be so timid about sharing Christ with people. Because if we really believed it, we wouldn't feel the need to always be trying to spruce up the simple message of the cross with all of our philosophy and all of our high-sounding education. We just give it out the way it is if it's the power of God. Because if we really believed it was the power of God, we wouldn't be so ashamed of the simple message of the cross. I mean, we treat the message of the gospel like it's a cap pistol. When Jesus Christ says it's an atom bomb. And I want to tell you, friends, the Word of God is the most potent force on the face of the earth. You say, I don't believe that. Oh, yeah, listen to me. Atom bombs, nuclear energy, and all the money in Washington can't change people's hearts. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can. I say that makes it the most powerful force on the face of the earth. And we as Christians need to begin using it that way. And you know what? We look at the simple message of the gospel and we say, well, it's kind of simplistic, Lon. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's, not real, it's not real flowery, it's not real philosophical. So what? The Bible says that to people who don't know Christ, the gospel seems like foolishness. But to those of us who know him, it's the power of God. And friend, it may start small in a person's life, but it won't stay that way. Not if you nurture it with prayer and love. It won't stay that way. It'll blow their life apart. What's the bottom line for this morning? I believe Jesus Christ wants us to have confidence in the power of the Word of God. And He wants us to give it out with boldness, with the assurance that we're injecting supernatural yeast into people's lives and that it's going to seethe and bubble and boil and blow their lives apart. Now, if you believe that, my question to you is, who is it that God wants you to inject with some yeast this week? How about your children, if you've got children? I want to tell you something. There is no more important injection you will ever make than the Word of God into your children. Because it may lie dormant for a while, but brother, I want to tell you, it'll come back around. You ought to be shooting them up with a load of that stuff every single day. And maybe God wants you to shoot up with a load of that stuff some of your friends at work, or somebody at school, or the neighbor that you walk with, or the people you go to the gym with, or relatives or family members. Envision yourself kind of walking around with a big old hypodermic needle full of yeast, and when you pass, people just go whack, like that. You know, that's all you're doing. Whack, whack. That's all you're doing. And if they look at you like you're crazy, just kind of smile and go, you know, we'll see how it works in a couple years here. Just hold on. And we ought to be going everywhere we go, kind of envisioning ourselves carrying that hypodermic over our shoulder and everybody we meet wanting to take the chance to kind of go whack, 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 right into those people. Now you may never see that yeast do its work. They may move, you may move, you may go to heaven. Well, who cares? Your job's not to leaven people. Your job's just to stick the yeast in. The word of God. God will do the rest. He's done it for thousands of years and he'll keep on doing it. He did it to you. He'll do it to other people. My prayer is that God would make us less ashamed of the gospel and more confident in the power of it. Isn't that what Jesus said? And we either believe him or we don't. Friends, let me tell you something. We will never reach a city for Jesus Christ if we keep the gospel inside this building. That's not where it was meant to stay. 
It's meant to be out there in the marketplace. And you know what Luther said, Martin Luther? He's dead too, for a long time. But let me tell you what he said. He said, the gospel is like a lion in a cage. He said, you don't have to defend the lion in a cage. All you have to do is open the gate and let him out. True? Don't defend the gospel. God didn't ask you to do that. You don't need to do that. Just open the gate and let it out. Shoot it into people's lives and it'll go to work. May God help us do that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these parables. Parables that, from my point of view, are very uplifting and challenging and motivating because they make us understand the power of the Word of God. And Father, I pray you would forgive us as Christians for denigrating the Word of God and its power, for selling it short, for being embarrassed and ashamed, for listening to Satan's lies that nobody wants to hear this. It won't make any difference. What's a few Bible verses going to do? I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take us this morning and give us a real good reality check and make us realize that it changed the lives of men like Chuck Colson and Marion Barry and many, many others and our lives. And it'll change others' lives if we'll just give it out. Don't reinterpret it. Don't sugarcoat it. Just give it out in love. And Jesus Christ will change lives with spiritual yeast. Make us willing to do that, Lord. Give us the courage to do that this week in the people that you bring across our path. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.